Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our discussion on bottle anesthetics. It's just too big of a talk to confine to a short one-episode link discussion, and so we wanted to, to do it justice by splitting it into two talks so that we could adequately go through the material. So if you're tuning into this episode and you have not listened to the previous episode, we're posting them back-to-back, so I really encourage you to go listen to the previous episode. That contains the bulk of the talk that we want to do in terms of the actual physiology of the vital anesthetics and how they work. But today, we want to continue our discussion with going through the different body systems and how the vital anesthetics affect the different body systems, and we also want to do a specific section on nitrous oxide. Tanner, do you just want to start us off here with cardiovascular? Yeah, so first let's think about the effects that this will have on our cardiovascular system. So these inhalational agents will decrease calcium entry into cardiac and smooth muscle. So what is that going to do? If we have decreased calcium entry, we're going to have decreased blood pressure due to a decreased SVR. And so we'll have a decreased MAP. Basically, the decreased SVR is going to be a really big component of this. And if you have somebody who is very, very sick or do not have a lot of cardiac reserve, this decrease in the SVR can be very problematic. You can have myocardial depression and you can have decreased inotropy. So your cardiac output would decrease. And again, this would also decrease your MAP as well. It's important to know that these inhaled anesthetics play more of a role in decreasing your SVR than decreasing your cardiac output. They're potent vasodilators, and so you may need something like phenylephrine to counteract it. You don't really want to give these volatile anesthetics if you have a septic patient or someone who comes down and is very hypotensive because, again, you're going to basically just be reducing that SVR, which will be more of a consideration than your decreased cardiac output. So there's kind of some varying literature on this as far as if it's actually a myocardial depressant or not. But just keep in mind, while it does technically decrease your cardiac output, it's probably negligible compared to the decreased SVR that it causes. Nitrous will activate your SNS, which will cause an increased SVR. So this can help attenuate some of those effects that you'll see with just your inhalational agent by themselves. They'll prolong your QT interval. So again, just keep in mind, you want to look at their med list and see if there's anything else that they're taking at home or it would make them susceptible to an already longed QT. So as far as your heart rate goes, it's important to know that SIVO and ISO will actually increase your heart rate because of your baroreceptor reflex, whereas DES is going to mostly stimulate your SNS system. You should know, however, if you're asked on a test, which one has the least effect on heart rate, that's going to be SIVO. SIVO has the least effect on your heart rate overall. Coronary blood flow will increase because of vasodilation of the coronary arteries. ISO does this the most, followed by DES, and then SIVO again will have the least effect on the coronary vasodilation. Coronary steel syndrome, this is something that is important to recognize and talk about. Coronary steel syndrome is the idea that healthy heart vessels can dilate to increase blood flow, but stenotic vessels from coronary artery disease will not be able to dilate. So this makes the distribution of blood flow uneven in the heart tissue. And so you basically 
get more blood going to the really healthy parts of the heart. And then the parts of the heart that are already stenosed and have disease are actually going to get less blood flow than they normally would. Isofluorine is going to be the main inhalational anesthetic that is going to be a consideration when you're talking about coronary steel syndrome. Yeah. And it's also important to note here that while theoretically this coronary steel syndrome is something that would occur due to that coronary dilation that we see, volatile anesthetics also precondition the myocardium and protect it from ischemia. So really in clinical practice, we don't really see this coronary steel syndrome as a really big concern. And then lastly here with cardiovascular is this idea of a right to left shunt. So let's say you have a patient that is shunting blood from the right side of their heart to the left. It's going to bypass, if you will, the lungs themselves in terms of how much volatile anesthetic can be uptake by the blood and then go to the rest of the body. So theoretically, then it's going to lower or slow the onset of our volatile anesthetic if you have a right to left shunt because more blood is then bypassing the lungs. This is more of a concern for drugs of low solubility, so DES, low blood solubility that is, because if there's already so few of molecules being brought into the blood to begin with to then go to the brain, this is going to dramatically decrease that even more. Whereas if you have ISO, for instance, that is more likely and more soluble to go across into the blood, it will still affect it and lower that onset, but not as much as DES. Moving into the respiratory side of things, bottle anesthetics basically cause your tidal volume to decrease, but it increases your respiratory rate to kind of compensate for this. Overall though, you're still going to have this overall decrease in minute ventilation, and then you're going to have a CO2 rise as a result from that. So your minute ventilation decreases and your CO2 goes up. Additionally, your volatile anesthetics cause our body not to be as responsive to our increased CO2 to stimulate breaths. So the CO2 response curve is going to shift to the right and shift down. Basically, what that means is a higher CO2 is needed to stimulate a breath. And when that breath is stimulated, it's going to be smaller in terms of its tidal volume. As a result, this is going to cause some respiratory acidosis that occurs. It's important to note here that nitrous does not cause this decreased responsiveness to CO2, which is nice, but the other volatile anesthetics will. Another thing is this causes bronchodilation. So this is one of the, the good things here from a respiratory standpoint. If you have a, maybe an asthmatic patient or something, you can bronchodilate with your bottle anesthetics. However, it is important to note here that DES is a respiratory irritant. So if you're going to do mask ventilation with a bottle anesthetic to get them to sleep, DES is probably not the best one to use here simply because it has that respiratory irritant that can occur. Also, volatile anesthetics are going to impair your airway dilator muscles in the upper airway. So this is a big concern just for upper airway obstruction. If you're going to go to extubate the patient, maybe you saw some residual effects from that. Another thing to note here is the volatile anesthetics will decrease your functional reserve capacity or your FRC. And lastly, with the respiratory system, when these volatile anesthetics are metabolized by the liver, they can produce some reactive oxygen species. And these reactive oxygen species actually impair our hypoxic drive. So the patient is not going to be stimulated to breathe when they start to go hypoxic. And so the more volatile anesthetic that is metabolized by the liver, the more this hypoxic drive is going to be diminished. So if you remember, liver metabolism is alphabetical. DES has the least, ISO has the next least, and then CVO has the greatest metabolism by the liver. And so you're going to see this more of an effect with CVO over DES. And then if you remember, halothane has 40% hepatic metabolism. So this would really cause a decrease in hypoxic drive as well. 
Next, let's talk about the kidneys. This is really not that big of a concern when we talk about the inhalational anesthetics. Technically, it can vasodilate and cause decreased blood flow to the kidneys, which can decrease your GFR. Check out last week's episodes if you want to know more about that. SIBO can produce compound A when the sodalime CO2 absorber is not working properly. This can cause renal injury. So if you Remember back to our discussion on the anesthesia machine. Compound A will be a consideration if you have a bad absorber. And again, this is mainly a consideration with SIBO. Fluoride can cause high output renal failure. So again, SIBO does the most because it has the highest metabolism by the liver. But again, this is not really a major concern. While we're here talking about it, DES makes more carbon monoxide in bad soda lime. So this can be a consideration for your renal system. In terms of the cerebral system, basically you have this uncoupling when you give autoanesthetics between your cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption, which we abbreviate as CMRO2, and then your cerebral blood flow. So usually these things are coupled, meaning that when your oxygen consumption in your brain increases you need an increase in blood flow to deliver more oxygen there. So basically, you're going to have a decrease in your vascular resistance in your cerebral arteries, get more blood flow, and then you have more oxygen available for that higher consumption. Well, these volatile anesthetics are going to what we call uncouple this process. So it will actually decrease the consumption, so your CMRO2, but it increases your cerebral blood flow. Along with that increase in cerebral blood flow, you're going to have a decrease in your cerebral vascular resistance in order to get more blood into the brain, even though we're lowering the amount of consumption that is needed by these tissues in the brain themselves. It's important to note here, though, that nitrous actually increases both. They still say it encouples it a little bit, but not near as much. It still increases your metabolic rate and oxygen consumption, and then also your cerebral blood flow as well. So volatile anesthetics as a whole cause suppression of your EEG activity. And what it does is it decreases the amplitude of the waves, as well as it increases the frequency, which we term latency. So it's going to increase that latency. It's going to make the wave longer, and it's going to decrease the amplitude. Well, this looks like ischemia. So if we're doing a procedure where we're monitoring evoked potentials, bottle anesthetics are not going to be the choice of anesthetic to be used here because it's going to look like we're having ischemia when we're monitoring these evoked potentials. Last thing we want to talk about as far as the different body systems is just all the other generalized symptoms that you can see with these volatile anesthetics. So the first thing you want to think about is this can cause nausea and vomiting. This is something that we've talked about previously, but if somebody has increased risk factors, then you may choose to do a TIVA precisely for this reason, because these inhalational agents can cause more nausea and vomiting than you would see if you did an IV anesthetic. You can see a dose-dependent relaxation of skeletal muscles. So if you're using these in conjunction with neuromuscular blockers, you'll need less neuromuscular blocking agents because these inhaled anesthetics actually cause a degree of muscle relaxation. If you recall, when we talk about malignant hyperthermia, we touched on this briefly last episode when we talked about the amount of anesthetic that can stay in the circuit. But again, this is a trigger for malignant hyperthermia. Nitrous is going to be okay. That's not really a consideration when you think of MH. But again, if you recall, in these scenarios, ranidine receptors can't close. And so the treatment here, again, will be to give dantrolene. We did a whole discussion just on malignant hyperthermia. So if you want more about MH, you can go back to that episode and listen to specific treatments and the algorithm associated with that. 
This will also disrupt your cerebral autoregulation ability. So if you recall, we talked about this with the kidneys about how they can autoregulate to ensure there's not any damage. And they're able to do this under certain systolic blood pressures. Well, the brain does the same thing, but our anesthetic gases is going to decrease the ability for the brain to autoregulate. And so whatever the patient's systemic blood pressure, this will be very close to what's going on in their cerebral blood pressure as well. So keep that in mind, especially if you have them in Schindelenburg or something like that, where you're already going to have increased blood flow or increased pressure. These inhalational agents are going to decrease our body's ability to autoregulate. It also will decrease hepatic blood flow. Isofluorine is going to be the one. If somebody has hepatic injury, you're going to want to use iso more than the others because it is the least restrictive as far as blood flow to the liver. All right. So to end our discussion, we just want to do a brief overview of nitrous oxide itself, different from the other bottle anesthetics. So nitrous oxide is 34 times more soluble than basic nitrogen, which is the main component in air. And it can cause the alveolar sacs to shrink when all this nitrous oxide moves from the lung into the blood. So basically what happens is we, we turn on nitrous oxide, it flows into the lung, and almost all of it just gets absorbed right into the bloodstream and leaves the alveolar space. Well, because it's 35 times more soluble than nitrogen, there's going to be way more nitrous oxide leaving the alveolar space than nitrogen is coming back from the blood into the alveolar space. And so you're going to have this relative shrink in volume in the alveolar space just simply due to all that nitrous oxide leaving. So what this does is it causes a reduction in the volume of your alveolar spaces, which increases your concentration of the other volatile anesthetic gases in that alveolar space to begin with. So it increases your FA. So if you remember from our last talk, the faster we increase that FA over FI, so that's the concentration in your alveolar space divided by the initial concentration that we're bringing in from the ventilator, the faster the onset. Basically nitrous, because it decreases that volume quickly of the alveolar space when it all gets absorbed into the bloodstream, it causes that temporary increase in FA simply due to less volume. Well, on the next breath then, you're going to have more gas being breathed in than a regular breath would be to try to compensate for that lower alveolar volume. And so this is also going to increase our FA because we're bringing more of that gas into the alveolar space. But then once that volume is restored, it really becomes then a normal breath after that, just a very temporary measure. And so that's called the concentration effect. Well, there's what's also called the second gas effect. And that basically is the idea that usually we run nitrous with another volatile anesthetic. What happens then is when nitrous all gets absorbed, that volume in the alveolar sac shrinks, that next breath will bring in more of that second gas. So let's say I'm running ISO. ISO will come in a lot more on that next breath to replenish the volume. And so you have that quicker onset and that quicker rise in FA over FI due to that shrinkage in volume from that nitrous being absorbed so quickly. On the flip side here, when we discontinue nitrous, almost all of it will be eliminated through breathing very, very quickly. And so all this nitrous jumps back into the lungs. And when it does that, it can dilute the oxygen and the carbon dioxide present in that alveolar space. And so this can cause some hypoxia to occur. So what we do to prevent this is when you're going to be emerging or discontinuing your nitrous, we dial up to 100% oxygen for several minutes after turning off the nitrous just to prevent this dilution effect of hypoxia. 
Nitrous also, I feel like the big thing we all think of a nitrous is that it's very easily diffusible into all body cavities and increases all the pressure in those. This is a big thing that we discussed on our talk with ENT procedures and ophthalmic procedures in terms of how it can increase pressure in the middle ear. It can alter retinal detachment treatment with those gas bubbles that the surgeon puts in. It can also increase the volume and pressure of our endotracheal tube cuffs or LMA cuffs, really any other cuff that you have that's going to be coming into contact with the nitrous oxide. So just keep that in mind. And then lastly, nitrous oxide inactivates methionine synthetase, which is basically an enzyme which regulates vitamin B12 and folate metabolism. And really this is a main concern in fetal development. So the reason that we don't want to give this to pregnant patients is because fetal development in the first trimester can be altered by giving this nitrous oxide, which can disrupt that DNA synthesis and cause some teratogenic effects. Basically, from what I've seen, though, is it really isn't the best choice to use at all throughout the whole pregnancy in general, but especially that first trimester. Hopefully, this episode, along with our previous episode of all the anesthetics, give you guys a really good overview on how they work the differences between them when we would use one over another and just increase your understanding of the physiology behind what we do with all anesthetics. <laughs>